Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello, Mod Pod listeners. Welcome to the new Retina radio series called Vitreous Opacities, which we're broadcasting on this special Mod Pod episode as a crossover. I'm John Kitchens with Retina Associates of Kentucky. On this third and final episode of Vitreous Opacities, we will explore how ophthalmologists and optometrists can work together to maximize treatment outcomes among patients with vitreous opacities. If you want to hear other conversations on this topic, Head on over to the new Retina Radio feed to see what has already been released. On this episode, I'm joined by two guests. First, my friend and colleague, Dr. Tarek Hassan, who's a retina specialist at Associated Retinal Consultants in Royal Oak, Michigan. Tarek is also a professor of ophthalmology at Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine. Welcome, Tarek. Thank you, John. I'm very happy to be with you. And we also have Dr. Walt Whitley, who is the Director of Referral Services at the Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk, Virginia. Welcome to the podcast, Walt. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Fantastic. Well, guys, let's jump right into this. Walt, I wanna start with you. Talk to us about the evolving nature of vitreous opacities and how they're evaluated and thought of in the optometric community. Uh, that's a great question because, you know, uh, when it comes to eye care itself, uh, as optometrists, we're seeing 78% of all first-time eye care visits and 67% of all eye care visits. And so oftentimes we're seeing a lot of the patients from early age to much more mature age. And so get to grow up and get to know their patients uh, over time. When it comes to any vitreous opacities, oftentimes uh, we are seeing many of these patients first. Uh, patients are complaining about uh, floaters or flashes. And, and so they wanna be seen. And so in our area, you know, I work at a referral practice, a tertiary referral care practice, and we have about 150 referring optometrists. And so often when the patients are having these uh, vitreous opacities and being, being symptomatic, they're seen by their optometrist. And so uh, we have lots of communication throughout the year with our referral network. They see those patients, but if they ever need, if they ever see some areas that's suspicious or want a second opinion, I mean, that's essentially where, where we're coming in. But, you know, having continuous communication uh, with the referring doctors and, and just being there just to work together to take good care of our patients has been, uh, been key for our success and our patients' outcomes too. And Tarek, from a retinal standpoint, you know, it, it's an evolving practice removing vitreous opacities. Where do we stand right now uh, as retina specialists in taking care of these patients? You know, I, I think it's um, evolving is the right word because I think that there was a time when really hardly anybody uh, doing retina would uh, pay much mind to vitreous opacities, probably writing them off as much less significant as many of the other things that we take care of. I think with time in our improving uh, vitreoretinal techniques, small gauge surgery, and their, the resulting improved safety and uh, better outcomes with small gauge surgery. I think that we're in a period where people really are reevaluating our ability to easily and very safely remove debilitating vitreous floaters. So, you know, we're in a period of time where we certainly can do it better and more safely than ever before. But I think there's still a stigma that maybe middle-aged to slightly older retina surgeons have 
against really making that a big part of their practice. And I think even in that group, it's starting to shift towards realizing that maybe we can help patients earlier with surgery. Unfortunately, our, I think our younger colleagues were just coming out of training and really only know the highly successful and very safe techniques that we currently use, I think are actually more likely to jump into the game of removing vitreous opacities earlier. They don't really have the negative associations with many of the bad things that happened with vitrectomy in years past. And Walt, where, where is optometry as far as their knowledge about how we take care of vitreous opacities as surgical options for vitreous opacities? Would you say it's, it's a 50% knowledge base? You feel like it's something that's being more accepted? Is it 100% accepted now? It's becoming more and more accepted. You know, traditionally, as Tarek was just mentioning, you know, many times patients tolerated it. Uh, due to, you know, due to the retina specialists you work with, some of them are more willing to do uh, uh, floaterectomies and, and remove any vitreous opacities. Some were hesitant saying, oh, no, it's something that just monitor over time. But, uh, you know, in our area with our retina specialists, we are in constant communication with our referring doctors and letting them know, hey, you know, if patients are symptomatic, you know, let's monitor these patients together. Yes, we know if it leads to, you know, more floaters or flashes and it's a detachment, that's totally different. But if they're having these floaters, let's monitor them. If at a certain point, it's still bothering them, hey, bring them in because, you know, this is a quality of life issue in a way that we can help improve our patients' lives. So, uh, and so we, at, at our practice, we do continuous communication on it. And I think that's a great point. I think, you know, we've done CE to educate optometrists in our area, but really I think the biggest thing is planting that seed by having successful patients, you know, patients who've undergone surgery for vitreous opacities that come back and tell their referring doctor, this is great. You know, this is fantastic. They have the second eye done and, and just planting that seed with one or two successful patients in each practice. It just really grows like wildfire. Tarek, what are some of the messages that, that you think as a retina specialist that optometrists need to understand about our role in taking care of these patients? Well, I think that, you know, firstly, I, I think that we need to work better and more closely with optometry. You know, it's always been interesting as a retina specialist that we've had sort of um, a, a middle, middle person, whether it be general ophthalmology or even an internist, someone between us and optometry. And I think that is uh, thankfully falling away in many parts of the country and, and for good reason. As Walt said, they, they're the front line of so much of, of eye care. I think that most retina specialists and probably me included, feel that it's really important to distinguish floaters uh, from one another and, and their effect on, on patients, uh, stratifying them into those that are the annoyances that we all get versus things that are truly visually debilitating. And, and of course, we're all trying to find out a ways to really indicate that to us and to the patients as to what is or isn't significant. I think most retina people, again, me included, think that as a big pie, removing vitreous floaters is kind of like cosmetic retina. And, and I hate to, to, to break it down into that blunt of a of sort of terminology, but if we treated everybody with floaters, we'd actually be treating everybody. And I think it's really important that as we communicate with optometrists, we would love it if optometry uh, would pass on the message uh, at their stage that everybody gets floaters. And most of them do just great. You forget about them. It's just part of getting older, just like you know other things that happen to us as we get older. 
but it but you don't have to live with them if they're debilitating. And so I think if optometry were the front line of sort of distinguishing the nuisance cases from the very severely debilitating cases, that would be wonderful for us because you're right. I think most of us will take these patients in and say, well, come back in a few months and let's talk about it again and come back again. And really we're just trying to hold them off because everybody gets floaters and we're not gonna operate on everybody. We shouldn't operate on everybody. And so it'd be great to have the gatekeeper be optometry in sort of filtering out those people that really need surgery uh, because they're so bothered and debilitated. Walt, for eye care providers, what are some of the things that they should be asking or eliciting for the, from their patients that may say, let's take that next step and let's refer you to a retina specialist? Well, you know, so many times we can just tell from the way the patients are presenting to us and just how their, their attitudes or perceptions are due to those symptoms and the impact that it's having on them. And so when they first started developing those pasties, of course, we're talking about, you know, signs and symptoms of retinal detachment. If there's a hemorrhage involved, we may see them sooner, a few weeks versus, you know, four to six weeks afterwards. But just letting them know, hey, you know, we're just making sure uh, first floaters are normal. These opacities are normal. It's part of growing up. But then sometimes it does affect quality of life. And if so, that's an issue. And we're feeling that from them at, let's say, four to six weeks. I'll say, hey, you know, hang in there. You know, this should get better over time. As Tarek just mentioned, every, a lot of people get floaters, but not everybody needs to get a floaterectomy uh, uh, for those cases. But I will see you back in four to six months. Let's reassess that. And if that's symptomatic, I'm going to get you in with my retina specialist. And thankfully, they're right next door to my practice. So it's, it's not too hard. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. And Tarek, is there a standard waiting period that we should have for these patients? Well, I, I think if you were to think of most people and sort of the average person, I do think several months. I mean, in my own head, it, it, I typically tell them, you know, roughly six months, five to six months, um, because I, again, everybody, if you're lucky enough to reach a certain age, are, are going to get some floaters. And 98% of the time, at least currently, in our, right, they people do fine, and and they 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 ignore it, and, and they don't really rise to the level of needing surgery. Not everybody, though, probably needs to wait that long. I mean, there are certain types of floaters, extenuating circumstances, such as people that have had a history of uveitis or endophthalmitis or prior scleral buckling or um, some other uh, situation where they have more dramatic vitreous opacities. I think that we touched, uh, have touched on it before in some of our other discussions that people with multifocal lenses tend to be bothered more acutely and more persistently, you know, obviously they have multiple, multiple focal planes for this floater to get in their way. And I think that those would be people that I would be more likely to bring back sooner than just saying, Hey, go away for six months and come back to me. But I think in general, if you're talking to your average patient who you can always get to say, yes, if you say, do you see any floaters? Almost everyone will say, yes, those people, you know, as you push them along and find out how bothered they are, I would, I would say four to six months, something like that. And what should the urgency be with referring a patient? Um, you know, do you want to see that patient the next week? Do you want to see the patient in, you know, a month? What, what, when should they try to get patients in with you? 
I mean, I think if they're absent symptoms of vitreoretinal traction, so no, no flashes or other symptoms that are worrisome about that, I, again, I think that it's obviously not an emergency. And then I think at that point, you tailor it to the patient's desire to sort of move on with their life. Um, I think any surgeon would be happy to see somebody if they're uh, very likely to get a surgery out of it because we all love to operate. And I think it goes to what we were talking about earlier, if optometry um, as, a, as a general uh, principle, we're the ones to filter out those that really, really are so motivated to want to have them removed to us. I think they can send them, you know, at, at the patient's next earliest convenience is what I'd like to say. Well, let's talk a little bit about communication between retina specialists and optometrists. Um, even outside of vitreous opacities, what's the best way for a retina specialist to communicate with an optometrist about the care they're giving their patient? Yeah, you know, there's there's many different ways that you can do it. And, you know, a couple of my partners, uh, Ro Adenthaya, David Salib, Corey Elkins. Uh, so we have several retina specialists and it's, it's communicating either through secure text, secure uh, uh, emails that we can send out. Or, or just making that phone call and just saying, hey, thanks for referring this patient over who had these vitreous opacities, and this is what our plan's gonna do. Uh, oftentimes during that communication is setting the stage and having that documentation as well, that, hey, this patient has been symptomatic. These have been affecting their activities of daily living. This has been going on for four to six months. I'm gonna refer you to Dr. Adenthaya. So the referring optometrist is going to tell that to the, to the patient. And then the patient, when they get to our practice, like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Gilbert said he was referring you to me. And so, you know, I'm excited to see you. That's This is what we're going to do. This is what's affecting you. And this is how we're going to work together. And so consistent communication, whether it's going to be through the referral letters, whether you have a liaison there to help out, to help improve the communication, but making sure that everybody knows what you do. And so yeah, uh, we haven't even started talking about uh, the laser vitreolysis at all. And so that we hear about that within that within the uh, within optometry and you know who believes in laser vitreolysis, who would prefer to do the uh, floaterectomy or the vitrectomy. Uh, you know, in our practice, we'd prefer the latter uh, because we 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 don't feel that uh, that that the laser uh, is the is the best option for our patients. But that's why our retina specialists we're doing the education. Or having the, those discussions and try to meet with them uh, as often as, or frequently as we can. You know, Tarek Walt brings up a great point. YAG laser vitreolysis. What's been your experience with it? What's the data out there? Does it work? Would you recommend it to patients? You know, I, I don't do it myself and, and frankly, haven't really tried it myself, mostly on the heels of having other patients sent to me who have had it done to them by other folks. And I think that uh, it's, it's my experience that it typically doesn't satisfy the patient. I don't think it removes floaters. Certainly it, it literally just breaks them up. So um, I don't think there are many uh, YAG vitreolysis patients who report you know, complete satisfaction. And if you're going to take someone to this next step of doing something that is, has been up to this point, not even one with a surgical indication, I think we should do it to a point where we're going to actually help them. And I think even, the data to this point um, is not convincing that that one would really rush to do that over vitrectomy. And I think I know, as you do, some of the authors of some of the larger papers on agvitrolysis will stand up on a podium and tell you that they would rather do a vitrectomy anyway. So I don't think there's really 
much of a significant role, particularly if this is something that's going to be an evolving market. And I think, I think it really is an evolving market. Um, it's got to have something, as I think you said, maybe at the beginning, John, it's, we have to have good outcomes and we have to actually satisfy our patients by removing all their floaters as many so that they are very, very happy. It really won't go anywhere and it's not really worth it as a, as a evolving uh, new technique and, and part of our practices if it doesn't. So in short, I'm just not a fan. Derek, you bring up a great point, outcomes. So talk to us a little about what we can expect as far as outcomes for our patients. What percentage of patients have a resolution of their symptoms, are happy? What's our complication rates with vitrectomy for vitreous opacities? You know, I, I think that this is something that is, that is actually evolving. I think we can talk about current, currently, I think our patients are extremely happy, particularly with small gauge surgery. I think most surgeons are very comfortable doing a pretty complete vitrectomy. Uh, they may not be doing vitreous-based shaving, but they're pretty much 100% uh, of the time in this group of patients, either removing all of the posterior hyaloid because they've had a complete PVD or they've elicited the PVD intraoperatively and then removed it. So I think our success rate at removing almost all floaters or all floaters to the best of a patient's ability, ability to detect um, is very, very high. Previous reports have reported an, an unusually higher rate of tears or detachment after doing vitrectomy on these types of cases. And I think the jury is still a little bit out on those. There are reports out there that have still very low iatrogenic tears and iatrogenic detachment rates in these types of cases. But there are other reports that have them up to 10 to 15. I've, I saw one report with 18 or 19% uh, iatrogenic tears associated with this procedure because it's felt that some of the more symptomatic patients just have a stickier vitreous. I think the jury's a little bit out on that. I have not noticed that in our practice, but I do think it's something that one must always keep in mind and obviously be, take great care of the peripheral uh, vitreous base and the retina during these types of surgeries. But I think our, our outcomes are great and I think they're getting better with greater care with the technique. You know, bring up a really good point there in that finding a retinal tear at the end of a case and lasering, it's not the worst thing. You've caught it, you've treated it. It's very unlikely that's going to go on to a detachment, but not depressing, not looking peripheral at the end of the case and missing a tear can have really devastating consequences. Walt, uh, last question for you. What would be your advice for your colleagues who are maybe seeing these patients with symptomatic vitreous opacities, but haven't quite taken the step to start talking about things that can be done for, for them? Well, it's going to come back to communication and reaching out to that retina specialist you work with, uh, uh, discussing the options that the patient has, because, you know, oftentimes it, it, with, with an optometry, we hear about, you know, some people do with the vitrectomies, other people, they hear about this laser, but there really isn't, there's only so much information out there so they want to hear from their retina specialist say, hey, what are your options? What are, or what are your thoughts on these various procedures? When do you want us to refer that patient? And so typically with, with our retina docs, they say four to six months. If that patient is still symptomatic, we're happy to see them at, at the next available. But just having that discussion, uh, helping the, the OD uh, be part of the team. And so whatever information you want them to relay prior to the referral to a retina specialist, to one of you all, you know, we're happy to have that discussion because uh, continuous communication between the patient and between us is only going to maximize the outcomes for the patient. 
But then uh, oftentimes from the OD perspective, they want to know after the procedure, more on the post-operative side, you know, how long are you going to follow them? You know, when would you like them to, to, to follow up the care for the patient and to know where that ha appropriate handoff is. But that goes back to the communication. And in the end, it's only going to benefit our patients. And Tarek, the last question for you, best practices for maintaining that relationship with optometry and retina and managing these patients? Well, it's, it's as Walt has suggested, it's really just making a concerted effort to communicate. And that that's, you know, not something that you want to take lightly, but you actually have to dedicate the time and effort to communicate with optometry. I think it's important for retina specialists to really understand how much of uh, primary eye care is handled by optometry. And, you know, Walt had given some numbers earlier, and, and I think it, it behooves us all in retina to really sit back and understand that, uh, especially for something like vitreous opacities, which we all know, again, affects really all of us after a certain age, uh, it is very likely that optometry will be the first line of defense, the gateway really, um, to keeping people out of the OR and getting people to the OR as they're seeing the majority of patients. So, it really behooves us as retina specialists to get to know our op optometric colleagues uh, pretty well. And, and you know, I think that re just really get a good understanding of how on the front lines optometry really is of, of many, of taking care of many of the patients that ultimately get to us. Well said. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this episode of Vitreous Opacities. I'd like to give a very special thank you to our panelists, Tarek Hassan and Walt Whitley. Thank you guys for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Mod Pod on whatever podcast platform you use. And if you want to hear more conversations about vitreous opacities, search for New Retina Radio to hear my conversation with Drs. Christina Wing and Steve Houston who covered surgery for vitreous opacities, and my chat with doctors Maria Baracol and Liz Yu, who tackled the question of how premium IOLs may exacerbate vitreous opacities. For now, I'm John Kitchens. Thanks for listening. 